The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. No ranked matchups in college football this week. That's when the magic happens. Pac-12 power continues what lies ahead in College Game Day's trip to Boulder for the first time since 1996. And we'd like to welcome Georgia to the start of the 2023 college football season. They finally have a possibly worthy opponent. This is the College Game Day podcast for Wednesday, September 13th. Reese Davis here. Pete Thamel is on assignment. Bill Connolly will join us in just a little bit. Boy, that sounded official, didn't it? That was like when someone sits in for the usual anchor on the network news and they go, Pete Thamel is on assignment. Pete's doing a story on USC star Caleb Williams. The Trojans are off this week. Big date with Colorado coming up in a couple of weeks down the way, and that could be huge if Colorado takes care of business against Colorado State, and should they be able to pull a monumental upset when they go to Oregon next week. But let's not do that yet. Let's not start projecting ahead just because you look at the slate and you say there are no games matching ranked opponents. Typically, somebody is going to get clipped. Now, who will that be? Well, that's where the magic is. Uh, We'll find out if any of that is picked on our Superdogs this week. Georgia plays an SEC game, South Carolina, but they're a four-touchdown favorite. But really, it's the first team that you feel like might give us an indication of you know, what Georgia has at quarterback. The first two games appears that they've got a rising star in Carson Beck, very talented guy who's played well. Dogs have been a little sluggish out of the gate, but they've picked it up, and that's what great teams do. And this might be the first time that the dogs will be very interested at the beginning. Hard to take a team with a long winning streak like that, two-time reigning national champion against a team that they know that they're going to overpower and really uh, make anything uh, make anything really pressing in their minds about whether they have to be right on top of their game. But they've been solid enough, and I expect that they'll be very good on Saturday. Good enough to cover the 27-and-a-half? You'll have to wait until the Friday podcast to find that out. Bowling Green and Michigan. Somebody is calling for the upset in that game. No, nobody on this podcast. It would be one Jack Harbaugh. Bowling Green alum, I believe. Jim Harbaugh's father played at Bowling Green. Jim told a great story this week about his father and mother meeting in a in an English class at Bowling Green and how he knew the fight song, uh, I Ziggy Zumba, the unofficial fight song at Bowling Green and even tried to take it to Stanford for a while, but said it didn't really take hold then. But the person calling for the upset of the Wolverines is Jack Harbaugh. And I'm tongue is firmly planted in cheek here, by the way. But Jim did a great impression of his dad and said that Jack has been telling him all week, they're going to come up here and kick your ass. So <laughs> I, I don't think Jack is right about that. I, I think that Michigan's going to be fine and they'll get started uh, as as things go along here. But there are other compelling matchups that I think could really give us some drama on Saturday. Tennessee hasn't won in the swamp since 2003. They've had some bizarre things happen since then. Uh, 2007, not really bizarre, but Tim Tebow built his Heisman resume with a huge game uh, in the swamp, even though you know Florida didn't have a great year that year. But Tim won the Heisman by their standards at that time. 2015, Tennessee seemingly had a victory in the swamp, 13-point lead. It was 13 instead of 14 because Butch Jones kicked an extra point in the fourth quarter to make it 13, ended up costing him in a one-point loss. Even before that, I mean, there were all kinds of virtuoso individual performances in this series in the swamp that went against Tennessee. Uh, 1999, Alex Brown wreaked havoc of five five sacks and an interception. 1997, the play that might well have ultimately cost Peyton Manning the Heisman Trophy through an 88-yard pick six to Tony George. And afterwards, Spurrier, of course, said the Lord's still smiling on the Gators. Turned out to be the only game Tennessee lost. Very close Heisman race. Charles Woodson of Michigan won it. And Michigan, of course, got a share of the national championship that year. So there's been a lot of frustration 
Now, Tennessee won in 2003, and that was, you know, that was uh, exercising some of those demons. But the balls have been wandering in the wilderness for a while. This is a real opportunity against a Florida team that had difficulty getting the right number of players on the field against Utah, which had difficulty with jersey numbers, all kinds of fundamentals that one would think would be all ironed out. But there's just something about being in that environment Night game in the swamp, desperate Florida team. Tennessee team that looked a little shaky here and there in the early going. There were a lot of reasons for it. There was a weather delay, and they didn't get to run through the tee uh, before their game last Saturday night. But I expect that the Vols will play really well. They didn't They didn't play great against Austin P. Joe Milton was one out of seven right out of the gate. They had some drops. But I'd be careful. That's one of those where you could be careful. Minnesota and North Carolina. North Carolina escaped again. For whatever reason, Appalachian State plays them off their feet every time. And Minnesota, salty on defense, can shorten the game, maybe put a little pressure on Drake May. Got a great uh, defender in the secondary in Tyler Newbin, who we've already seen uh, come up with a couple of interceptions. Uh, The whole Tez Walker thing has been swirling around North Carolina. Might they be ripe for getting clipped. And then with all of the success that the Pac-12 has had and all of the struggles that the SEC has had in non-conference games are already uh, just one loss short is the SEC of the number of non-conference losses they had all of last season. Well, it took the SEC to knock the Pac-12 off of its perfect pedestal with Mississippi State beating Arizona in overtime and Auburn somehow outlasting Cal in the wee hours last week. But doesn't that speak to where the SEC is this season more than anything else? That their point of pride is really, hey, we're the ones that stopped the Pac-12 from being perfect. That's a that's a pretty remarkable thing. And the SEC has a few more uh, tests this week. Georgia Tech is at Ole Miss. That's a game that Ole Miss should be able to handle. Missouri is hosting Kansas State in what is one of the more contentious matchups that you might see because there were some internet trolling, uh, allegedly, potentially, between Eli Drinkwitz and, and some people before the game last year. The Kansas State players have said this week that Missouri made a bunch of excuses about the weather and different things when the Wildcats smashed them in Manhattan last year, 40-12 to 12 was the final. Wouldn't be surprised if things get a little testy there, too. And Missouri's going to want to make a statement. This is their opportunity to do so. Uh, and also, the two warm-up games about a game that I can't wait for next week. I'm not going to wish away this week. We're going to have great moments. Can't wait to get to Colorado. Uh, that's going to be a just a cool scene. Sellout crowd at Folsom Field. Beautiful backdrop. Dion. Shadour, Travis Hunter, Shiloh Sanders, all those guys doing their thing. It's going to be really fun. But next week is Ohio State at Notre Dame. And Ohio State has Western Kentucky and an unsung wide receiver coming in for the Hilltoppers um, in Malachi Corley, who last year led the nation in yards after the catch. Nearly 300 more than the next closest guy. And he's been looking forward to this game throughout the offseason. Says he wants people to be like, who is this guy? Might be able to find out uh, if he can get loose. And of course, last week, Ohio State got Marvin Harrison, Emeka Abuka going. They've settled on Kyle McCord as their starting quarterback. So even though there might not be the marquee matchups this week, there are still plenty of uh, Plenty of opportunities for chaos. And then one, and from a news standpoint, maybe the most intriguing game of them all is Washington at Michigan State. Future Big Ten rivals once Washington makes the move. Mel Tucker will not be there. Mark D'Antonio will be as associate head coach. Apparently, it seems that he's going to be in the booth to help out Harlan Barnett, who is actually now the Uh, acting or interim head coach since Mel Tucker is suspended uh, over the allegations that he sexually harassed Brenda Tracy. Uh, Tucker has come out with a very strong statement denying all of the allegations. And, you know, here's, here's the issue with this in my judgment. 
number one, you have to do a full investigation and arrive at what the truth is. But if this were an isolated situation, meaning not just for Mel Tucker, but if it were at a place that did not have the recent history that Michigan State has had with horrific sexual misconduct scandal, allegations, convictions in the case of Larry Nasser. It's something that has cast a cloud over Michigan State for the last few years. And it's something that from a perception standpoint that they cannot afford no matter what. Patience and finding out, which still is important, by the way, But you might be able to say, look, let's arrive at the absolute truth here and see if Mel Tucker is able to clear his name and continue to coach. But given Michigan State's problems over the last few years that are not just isolated to the football or the gymnastics, there were several incidents that have been investigated, well-documented investigations, one, one of which was done by ESPN. Perhaps there would be a path for Mel Tucker at some point to be the head coach if, if he is telling the truth, the unvarnished, non-twisted, absolute, complete truth, if. But at Michigan State, this appears to be an untenable situation to me. I, I think it's pretty obvious that he's done and that what they do going forward you know, remains to be seen, whether there's a settlement what any type of suits or countersuits that are bound to come, how those all play out. Um, And all of that provides an interesting backdrop to a game in which the Spartans are at home, a decent start to the season. Washington is a 16-point favorite in the game. They come in supposedly ready to dominate uh, this game. Michigan State, you know, has an opportunity when you're that big of an underdog at home to pull a season-defining type of upset against a team that beat them in Seattle last year. But it doesn't feel, it feels like with all of the chaos surrounding the program right now that any inclination that you might have that Michigan State is going to rise up and beat Washington would would be knocked back. I mean, Michigan State, I think, is coming off a week in which Noah Kim, they're their quarterback, I believe he was Big Ten Player of the Week, but it feels like all negative surrounding the Spartans right now. And and from watching Washington against Boise State, returning to on-the-field discussion now, um, they, look like, they look like a team that could be in the running for a spot in the college football playoff. Still really early. A lot of improvement needs to be done. But they have some pieces on defense. They obviously have as explosive a downfield passing attack as anybody in the country. And I think Penix, Michael Penix Jr., has a real opportunity to work his way into that QB3 discussion once the NFL draft rolls around. But there is one game. The two teams that once played a nine-overtime slugfest, Penn State and Illinois. Penn State on the road, 14.5-point favorite. 11 a.m. local kick. You know how those things get sleepy. And it seems to me that as bad as Illinois looked on Friday night, that stylistically, this might suit them a little bit more. They're not going to have a quarterback at Penn State's not as good as Drew Aller has been. He's not going to be running around a lot. I don't think there's any way in the world, any way in the world, that Illinois wins the game. I don't think they have enough offense. And I think Penn State's really good, too, by the way. But 14 and a half, sleepy start, maybe a slow first half. What's going on here in Champaign? And all of a sudden, uh, Penn State ekes out there. Maybe that'll be something. Maybe I'll go with uh, our good friend Bert Bielema. I like to call him Bert because of the spelling of his name before we start getting the cards and letters about, it's Brett, how can you not know that? But uh, I'm sure... Bielema was disappointed in the showing in Lawrence on Friday night, and they'll be eager to atone, and they've got a really good uh, defensive front. And so they'll at least make the sledding tough for Penn State when they're trying to run the football. And since we were just talking about Michael Penix Jr. and his opportunity to be QB3 best in game, is brought to you by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. You know, sometimes that feels like that you're a slight saying QB3, the foregone conclusion that Caleb Williams is going to be number one and Drake May is going to be number two. 
you know, this could be a really deep quarterback class. And that is one of the reasons I think that you're seeing some of the changing at the top of the rankings this year is because of it, it was a theme coming in quarterback questions at the places that have dominated college football playoff spots. I mentioned earlier, it, it appears through two games against overmatched opponents that Georgia is going to be fine there. Alabama's, you know, got a big question at quarterback and what they do Saturday against USF, whether they stick with Jalen Milrow or whether they uh, perhaps explore Tyler Buckner, Ty Simpson as other options we'll see on Saturday. Clemson hasn't gotten off, especially in the Duke game, to the type of quarterback start that they had hoped, yet the teams that have had good quarterback play have ascended quickly. Texas, Quinn Ewers play Wyoming this week, um, see how they follow up with a hangover after that great win against Alabama. I think they'll probably uh, move forward and look like a team that is going to be a season-long contender for that spot. Ewers playing at the level at which he did Saturday night in Tuscaloosa makes Texas a contender. We've talked about Michael Penix Jr. Makes Washington a contender. Goes without saying, Caleb Williams in USC contender. Can Ohio State get that level of play from Kyle McCord? If they do, they suddenly elevate. And Notre Dame, who I've already alluded to with Ohio State next week, with Sam Hartman being even better than I thought he might be at Notre Dame up to this point, that's a big test next week. And if Hartman continues to play at that level, then Notre Dame is now in the mix too. Bo Nix at Oregon. He's going to get marquee opportunities over the next few weeks. With the way the game is played now, if you have elite quarterback play, that's what's going to lift you into playoff contention. People want to know, you know, what happened with Alabama. Well, they've had a ridiculous run at quarterback. Jalen Hurts, Tua, Mac Jones, Bryce Young. Even before that, Blake Sims and Jake Coker played really well, and they haven't gotten that or didn't get that against Texas on Saturday night. Clemson hasn't gotten that yet. I almost left out Michigan. Michigan has had almost perfect quarterback play from J.J. McCarthy, yet there have been no tests. There will be in the not-too-distant future for the Wolverines. ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Capital One. <clears throat> ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks. Predicting upsets. Winning my bracket group and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate. Joining us now, as he does weekly, is Bill Connolly. Absolute, absolute <laughs> expert, a virtuoso on the numbers, as it were. My perception, Bill, is that you look at the schedule this week and you have no games matching ranked opponents. So this is when the magic of college football happens. This is when the memorable <laughs> upsets occur. This is when teams go to Champagne, sleepy start, they get clipped. All the Penn State th fans think I'm calling for that. I am not. They don't have enough offense to do it, I don't think. But early starts, Florida State's on the road early, you get sleepy, all of a sudden you wind up, you find out you're in trouble. This is all institutional knowledge and hunch and years of being in the college football studio and then <laughs> uh, at college game day telling me this. You, however, have documented data, numbers, math yes. that say that this is highly likely to happen. Yeah, this is, I mean, any hardcore college football person should be, should understand, look at the schedule and your first thought is, oof, I don't know, there's nothing here. And then you start to, it gets that, that movie kind of feeling that it's, it's quiet. It's too quiet. Uh, something <laughs> is going to happen. And I think 
basically, you know, my take on it for my my Friday column is just going to be you, you start mashing odds together here. You got seven top 15 teams playing on the road. There's only like a 15% chance that they all win. Um, don't ask me who's going to lose. It's probably not going to be Florida State or Alabama. Uh, you know, Alabama's never played well and, you know, never won an easy game in Tampa, but they've never played USF in Tampa. It's always been bowl games and whatnot. So, um, you know, LSU is in kind of a dangerous place. Tennessee could be in a dangerous place. Maybe Washington. I don't, you know, the whole Michigan State thing is a little, little odd right now, but, uh, you know, Kansas State, technically, they, they've looked a lot better than Missouri this year, but it's their first road trip. So Penn State, maybe. Um, but there are some opportunities here, and, and history tells us that not all the favorites win. So somebody's going to go down. We just uh, kind of have to keep our head on a swivel here looking for who it's going to be. Uh, I spent some time talking about the Washington-Michigan State game. Ordinarily, you might think it would just be a spot where they would get clipped, sort of went through all of the issues surrounding the Michigan State program. I feel as if rather than galvanizing that this is probably more distracting, but even on top of that, even if this situation hadn't occurred, I just I feel like Washington's legit and, and <laughs> I don't know I don't know if they cover that big number or not, or would have otherwise, but I I feel like that they will I feel like they'll go in there and and win fairly easily. Mississippi State is tempting, but it always seems like for whatever reason that they don't play LSU great. You know, and I know it's a different yeah. <laughs> regime, different offense and, and things like that. Um, they seem to give other teams a little more trouble than they've than they've given LSU. And I you know, I know Dak got them a, a few years ago, but that's it's been a minute now. And maybe there was another one somewhere in there that I've forgotten. Um yeah, well I guess uh you know, I, I guess the year that uh, Leach took over, they went and got him pretty good, um, unleashing the air raid offense. That's and then right. the history, the history with Tennessee and Florida. I mean, balls haven't won there in 20 <laughs> years. But the one I want to start with with you is your alma mater, Missouri and Kansas State. You touched on it just a little bit, but sort of low key. These two teams, as they say, just playing don't like each other. Fair enough. Oh yeah, I mean, and they recruit against each other reasonably often, um, and, and I mean, so it is kind of you know it's become kind of the modern rivalry where you don't actually play each other on the field, but you still kind of bicker at each other because you're in approximately the same neighborhood, and and so I, th- I do think there's going to be it's a sold out crowd. Kansas State's going to bring bring plenty of people to town, and um, for their first trip here since what like 2010 or 11, I guess, um, and and it should be you know. Missouri's going to have a chance. The problem is Missouri has gone in the opposite direction of Kansas State since the season began. I think um, it, using preseason projections, my SP Plus ratings had this as like a you know KSU by a half a point kind of situation at the beginning of the season, um, and now it's KS it's K State by ten ten point two. And, and that kind of spells it out pretty clearly. They've been, you know, for both of these teams, they've played two of their weakest opponents on the schedule, maybe the two weakest opponents on the schedule. And so it's one of those deals where when I'm looking at stats, I'm like, it's, it's never going to look better than this, um, in terms of the raw rankings. Uh, and it's also, you know, if, if you, if you're weak in a specific area, that's a major, major, major concern because it's only going to get harder from here. Well, the only weakness I really see on the K State side, not a lot of big run plays, which obviously in the post Deuce Vaughn era, that was going to be kind of hard to match. Um, and they do kind of go three and out a lot. It's, it's been kind of an interesting situation where once they get that first, first down, they're going to go score. Um, but they've gone three and out almost one third of the time so far. So that's something on the K-State side. The defense has been outstanding though. And Missouri, for all of K-State's problems in the explosiveness category, Missouri just makes no big plays, period. Um, they have athletes, but they just have not been able to, uh, turn that into any explosiveness. So their efficiency numbers are fine. Uh, they are among the bottom 30 or 40 teams in terms of my explosiveness ratings, which after playing South Dakota and Middle Tennessee is a very scary sign. Um, and if, and if they can't create easy points, which is a lack of easy points is why they struggled to pull away from Middle Tennessee last week. It's going to be, it's going to be a struggle. So we'll see. Eli Drinkwitz says that, you know, that we just, we have the athletes, we just haven't executed. And if that's true, then sure, they can start making some big plays and, and they'll be able to scare K-State. But until we see that, this is definitely a K-State uh, advantage. Regular season games against opponents from other Power Five conferences, regular season. Climbing's 3-0. and They've beaten 
Mississippi State, Stanford, Missouri, and they've beaten them by an average of nearly three three touchdowns, about 17 points per game. Um, you know, I always, when coaches say things like that, that we have the players, we just aren't executing, well, they have yep. to. They sure can't say, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> we're players are very good, you know yep. what I mean? So, or, or yep. you know, we have a particular problem at quarterback that we can't use this player and that player as effectively as we would like if we had a higher level of play at quarterback. So, I mean, I don't blame them for saying that, but, and it, and it is true. Yeah. You know, that's something that I don't want to digress off of the numbers too far here, but I hear people sometimes complain in the aftermath of games that, you know, coach was making excuses. No, yeah. when a coach goes into a news conference after a game or talks with a reporter about what happened, what you're trying to find out is why didn't things go better from your perspective? You know, and they say, why don't you just tell the other guy they played a great game and they whipped you? Well, that's not terribly interesting. You want to know from the winning <laughs> coach, why were you able to win? What went right for you? How did you exploit those matchups? Why did that big play occur? And from the losing coach, you know, why did you, why, what caused that turnover? Why did you give up X number of sacks? How come your defense busted that coverage? And so it's, that's sort of a coach's nature, you know? This didn't go well because we we were supposed to do this. Instead, we did that, you know, and if we did this like we were supposed to, then we would have had a better chance at succeeding. Yet, I don't know why people get so mad about that and think it's making <laughs> excuses. They're just, that's what we want. We want the winning coach to tell us what happened to allow them to win and the losing coach to tell us what they, what they missed on and what could have gone better for them if they were going to win the game. Yeah, I mean, it, it's we we do always try to really really play the semantics game there, and and we always you know he was throwing his players under the bus or he was throwing his play callers or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But no matter what they say, they're blaming themselves in the end. If, mm-hmm. if if the quarterback played terribly, it's his fault. The quarterback played terribly. If the you know if the offensive coordinator made terrible play calls, where he hired the offensive coordinator, like, it's all on him. No matter what, we might as well uh, you know get the most honest possible answer out of it. Uh, you know, and that's always kind of a. I, I've learned to kind of just tune all of that out because you know, it, it's people are going to figure out a re- when their team loses, they're going to figure out a reason to be mad about it one way or the other, and whatever the coach says, they're going to be mad about that too. Jesse Palmer tells a great story from his time at Florida. It was not an interception that Jesse threw, but uh, another of the quarterbacks he was competing against, and uh, Spurrier, according to Jesse's story, which may or may not have been embellished, but. One of the great storytellers. Jesse tells the story. Guy throws the interception. Spurrier comes over to him, pats him on the back and says, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's us dumb coaches for putting you in that position. <laughs> you know, so it's uh, yeah. I, I don't think uh, there's ever been an embellished Spurrier story. I think they're all true. So uh, that fits. I mean, pro- probably so. Probably so. What else? What else are you watching? Is the number too big? Uh, in the Georgia-South Carolina game because I, I don't see any way in the world the Gamecocks can win, and I'm probably foreshadowing my pick on Friday a little bit. But this feels like 41-14, you know, 41-17, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a cover for South Carolina. It's like 27 and a half, I think. Yeah, uh, so, I mean – with SP Plus, it says 39 to 16, so even more of a cover for South Carolina. Okay. And, my, and the numbers really don't like South Carolina at all. They've fallen from 31st to 39th since the start of the season. Um, I think what's really, really interesting about the teams at the top, or maybe this is the opposite of interesting, really, none of them have really played yet. Right. Um, and, and I don't even mean like they haven't played good opponents, but they haven't even really cleared the – like SP Plus – Georgia's underachieved by, you know, they achieve underachieved by about eight points against uh, UT Martin, about nine points against Ball State. Uh, Michigan's underachieved projections twice. Uh, Ohio State has as well. It's hard to figure out if there's anything, you know, any signal in that, as they would say, or, or whether it's all just, you know, they knew they were going to win. They know they have bigger games. We're just going to play things real straight and, and eventually we'll pull away. Like Georgia has started two straight games extremely slowly on offense, less so against Ball State. Um, but 
basically, you know, my numbers see that and they see a team that is clearly the best in the country, but maybe not as dominant as we thought. And, and maybe they're only 23 or 24 points better than South Carolina. We'll see. This is first game where they actually have to hit the gas a little bit. And South Carolina is a team under Shane Beamer. Like they'll throw haymakers at the big teams. Like it, mm-hmm. it might get them knocked out. They've been blown out quite a few times under Beamer, but they also beat Tennessee and Clemson in last season. So I do think we'll see, you know, Georgia's going to have to play. And uh, maybe we find out that once they actually hit the gas, everything's fine and they're better than ever. But they haven't been yet. And, and this will be a nice test for them to, to ease their way into the season, I guess. Which, which brings us to this big picture topic about the SEC's non-conference struggles. Relatively speaking, of course, relative to their typical uh, excellence or dominance. What do your numbers say about that? Yeah, they, the SEC still has the best overall average just in terms of average ratings, uh, but it did go down by about a point and a half after last week. Um, they're still pretty far ahead of the pack because they still have Georgia. Um, you know, and for all the disappointment about Alabama, that's still probably a top five level team or top 10 at the very, very worst. Um, and, and so they still have the most good teams. Most of their teams are in the top 30. But yeah, I mean, uh, you had a lot of teams move down from the, you know, the twenties to the thirties and stuff like that. You know, Kentucky sleepwalking past Eastern Kentucky, Tennessee sleepwalking past, uh, Austin P, uh, Missouri getting out ahead and then just kind of stopping against Middle Tennessee. There were a lot of games that were closer than they should have been. And then obviously the marquee games, uh, Alabama, Texas, LSU, Florida State went the other way. Um, I, so, yeah, I mean, so basically I do think it's still the best conference overall. The Big Ten hasn't just covered itself in glory so far this year by any means. Um, and I, and I'm not ready as fun as the Pac 12 is. I'm not ready to say it's at that level just yet, but it has been disappointing. Uh, Alabama is not the best Alabama. LSU is not the best LSU. And, and we'll see exactly who improves moving forward. And we'll see what that means for Georgia too. Um, obviously. I'm not going to pretend like they don't get in if they go 11 and one, um, even with a week ish kind of schedule. Uh, but they, among other things, you know, if they're really not going to be tested all that much until November, that's just, I don't think that's good for a team. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, if you don't have to show what fifth gear is all that often, I don't think your fifth gear is going to be as good when you actually have to show it. So, um, that's going to be kind of an interesting subplot. Can South Carolina do Georgia a favor? Uh, by actually testing them a little bit or Auburn here in a couple more weeks or Kentucky. I don't know if they will. And that's probably not good for Georgia. The thing that would delight every fan outside of the SEC (laughs) is for a two loss Alabama, a two loss LSU, a two loss, you know, Ole Miss, you know, whoever to come in and upset Georgia in the SEC championship game then Georgia wouldn't really have a huge marquee win. Let's say they're undefeated. You know, Under that scenario, mm-hmm. maybe Tennessee's got a couple of losses too. They don't have a, a huge win. They don't have a lot on their resume. That would be the nightmare scenario for the SEC <laughs> and the one that you know all of the other fans in the other conferences dream of. Not predicting it, and I think you could very easily still make the case that Georgia would be one of the four best teams. But because of the SEC's non-conference performance up to this point in the season, it doesn't feel as if there's this big separation, and it doesn't feel like an absolute no-brainer. And it would bring, depending on what everybody else across the country, if everybody's got a loss, then probably it's you know still the same thing. But if you know if you were to have if you were to have a couple undefeated teams, a couple other conference champions, it would at least bring it into question. And maybe, yeah. uh, you know, it would be a different scenario a little bit because Georgia would have made the championship game, but it would be somewhat like that 2015 Ohio State team that everybody yeah. kind of knew was one of the best, but they didn't always play their best. And then they lost uh, the wrong game at the wrong time and didn't even make it to the Big Ten uh, championship game. And and circumstances conspired against them. That's probably yeah. that's probably something that we ought to at least put somewhere in the recesses of our <laughs> mind as the season goes if you want to lend some big-picture perspective to the importance of the SEC uh, not performing to its usual standards. Or other teams yeah. – let me rephrase that because I don't want to make it all about them. The teams from the other conferences elevating their games and proving that they're just yeah. as good. How about that? That, yeah. That's probably a better way to put it. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, basically what we've seen in this playoff era is that, I mean, most of the time, if you if you get to the end of the season with one loss, you're probably going to get in, but it's not guaranteed. It didn't happen for Ohio State. It didn't happen for Baylor and TCU that first year. Um, but yeah, I mean, usually it, I, I would assume a 12 and one Georgia makes it in regardless, but yeah, it kind of, it depends on everybody else. And right now you can certainly look at the PAC 12. I mean, maybe they still beat each other up and the, the conference champion has two losses, but they're going to get through non-conference with all of their teams pretty much unbeaten. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, that increases the odds of whoever wins that conference being 12 and one Florida state looks like they have pretty good odds of finishing 12 and one. Uh, the big 10 champion is probably going to be 12 and one or 13 and oh. So you look at it like that and yeah, I mean, upsets are going to happen and, and screw up everything we think we know. But right now you can certainly paint a picture of a 12 and one Georgia having a much, much weaker resume than the, uh, than a bunch of other one loss teams. That'll be really interesting to see what the committee does with that. Listen to us, Bill. Listen to us. Listen to what we did. <laughs> we spent the first part of our conversation going, boy, wait till you see all these big upsets that are happening. And then both of us immediately go, well, you know, after Georgia goes 12 and 0, what? (laughs) Everybody's going 13 and 0. After Washington goes 12 and 0, after SC, you know, (laughs) rolls in there, you know. It's uh, it, it's it's human nature. It's it's hard not to. It's hard not to. We know we know what the odds say, and we know what our eyes have told us so far too. So what are you looking forward to this week? Which which games really have your attention that might be a little bit uh, a little bit out of the spotlight? Well, I think obvious, for obvious reasons, uh, Washington Michigan State is is a lot less fun to talk about than I thought it was going to be. But um, I, I am very curious about one aspect of that game, and that's the fact that Michigan right Michigan State right now, after two obviously pretty weak opponents, they're first in the country in sack rate, and the one thing that we have never really seen from Washington in the Kalen DeBoer, Michael Penix Jr. era is what happens when Penix gets pressured because he's just done a – he does a good job of getting the ball out quickly. He has a good line in front of him, um, and he hasn't played very many good pass rushes through you know whatever it's been now, 15 games or so. So if that's real, if Michigan State really does have a plus pass rush, they haven't had a blitz that much uh, to get a lot of pressure, and that almost kind of worries me because – uh, they will have to, you know, try to pressure Penix. But if, if that's real and he's under a lot of pressure, then you can easily slot that game into kind of the the stereotypical road upset kind of scenario where, you know, the quarterback's getting hurried, maybe throws a pick or two early on, home team builds, you know, gets early momentum and an early lead and all that. So that one that one kind of fits a, a, a mold of an upset. But obviously it's going to require Michigan State to – <laughs> to show up and and play really really hard despite everything that's happened over these last few days and it's I you know we'll see I, I never like to make predictions about that because you never know but it's certainly right. yeah. they, they, they've got a lot of distractions on the plate right now it's uh and it really goes back to an off season theme which you know we got uh, me particularly got teased about every time we would do a preview of a team I would bring up the offensive line right because I yeah. feel like that cohesion continuity a little experience it doesn't mean you're good just because your guys have played a lot and it doesn't mean you're Mm. bad if they haven't but the communication that you have to have up there that a lot of people I think take for granted everybody understands they have to communicate every fan understands that but the level of it and really trusting each other in who to pick up how to adjust protections all those types of things oftentimes goes better if you've had guys who've played a lot Washington doesn't coming into the season. They didn't have like 36 career starts, something like that. It was toward the bottom of the nation. But I talked to somebody close to that team um, right before the season started. He said, you're right. He said, but feel great about the tackles. <laughs> feel great yeah. about the tackles, and we think we're going to be fine. You know, under, understand your point, but we like the guys on the edges. And that's a great place yeah. to start if you're going to try to – protect a quarterback and allow him to use uh, those great weapons that they have. So I, I agree with you with the way Michigan State gets after the quarterback. That will be a real test, not only for Penix, but for these tackles that they feel great yeah. about and for the rest of the offensive line, if they can perform up to standards. And if they do, 
if they do, look out, look out, because that really that was the that was the only problem. Yeah, I think it's it is pretty easy shorthand to um, in this era where to win the national title you probably have to beat either Alabama, Georgia, or both. It is pretty easy shorthand to basically if you don't know who's really a contender who or who's not, look at the quarterback and the two lines, and that'll mm-hmm. that'll that'll tell you. Like that's how Texas beat Alabama the other day and almost did it last year, actually. Um, and we'll see with Washington. They have, you know, their numbers are very, were excellent last year and they're very good so far this year. And we'll just see what happens when they play better teams. Michigan State's a nice step forward in that regard. Um, but there are still better teams on the schedule later on. And, uh, man, it's, it's when, when Penix has time, uh, he's going to beat just pretty much any defense out there. And, and we'll see if anybody can make him not have time, I guess. My low key underrated thing that I want to watch this week is assuming he's at full health is Western Kentucky wide receiver Malachi mm. Corley. Great after the catch. Off season, he didn't make any boastful predictions or anything like that, just how much <laughs> he was looking forward to playing in the horseshoe against Ohio State with, with Marvin Harrison Jr., who best receiver in the country and was last year. I think Emeka Abuka, who's one of the best. Corley, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Bill, led the nation in yards after the catch last year and had nearly 300 more. The jersey number, he looks like a, a slightly smaller Julio Jones, and a lot of people have uh, likened him more stylistically to Debo Samuel in the in the way. I mean, he run he runs through guys sometimes. Yeah. So, from your numbers, will Malachi Corley, if assuming health, because uh, he had he had a lower lower leg injury, I think that it slowed him. I don't think he played last week. Will he have the opportunity to make people do exactly what he said? when he said he wanted people to come out of that game and going, who is this guy? <laughs> Will he have the chance? Well, I think I, I, I love this game for Ohio State right now for that very reason. Western Kentucky is going to throw the freaking ball. And, and um, they, don't, they do it in a little bit of a different way. Like you said, I mean, they're really good at you know, getting guys in space, uh, often pretty close to the line of scrimmage and letting them um, you know, run into that, in, that open space. It works really well. Uh, that is kind of the definition of, you know, Tyson Helton a couple of years ago had a terrible offense. So he went and hired a great offensive coordinator. And even though that coordinator left, the offense is still in place and they're just, you know, 5,000 passing yards a year. Like it makes it seem like these things are really easy to fix the way he fixed them. But Austin Reed and, and Corley and these new guys who have stepped up with, with Corley not playing as much, Mess, uh, Easton Messer, Dalvin Smith, Katie Hutchinson, this is the best receiving core that they've played so far. Uh, Ohio State, better than Indiana's, I think. And um, th- it's just gonna, it's we're gonna find out if Ohio State's defense is as improved as it has looked like they are so far. Um, it'll also give Ohio State probably a pretty good chance to to find a rhythm defensively because Western Kentucky's defense is very good. So um, it'll work for them in that regard too. But no, I mean, this is they will have a very good chance to to kind of earn some national attention western kentucky will in this game and i assume they um you know youngstown state had an early an easy drive early on in that game last week before ohio state really found a rhythm maybe the hilltoppers can do the same and make this interesting for a while especially if well especially if the ohio state defense remains in third gear as it has been so far this year too can you imagine the angst in columbus Mm -hmm. if uh if western kentucky has a couple of uh couple of chunk plays in the early going and, and scoring early and worrying about peeking ahead to Notre Dame next week. And yeah. I mean, of course, then again, now that they've completely settled the quarterback issue, if they could, at least for now, if they could settle the third down problem, I think they're you know, right. toward the bottom of the country on third down. They settle that. They might also go up. They might also go up 21, nothing after three drives and be, and be cruising to South Bend, you know? So. Yeah, well, I mean, Western Western in that regard too. It is going to be exhausting playing them because even if they're down fourteen nothing, they're still just going to be. It's like the, the the old Mike Leach teams. They're just going to wing the ball seventy times if they have to, and you're going to have to keep defending. So, um, you know, the DBs are going to work out if nothing else. I think uh, one other one other thing I want to hit on in the game is a little bit off the radar, and because of the way Texas handled Alabama, the question becomes: What's next for Alabama? Do they stick with Jalen Milrow? What the the errors were 
obvious and catastrophic, whether, yeah. you know, it was a two terrible interceptions, uh, the two touchdowns called back because of offensive penalties, both of which were, were pretty obvious, um, with a lineman downfield and certainly the hold, there was a tackle uh, basically in the in the yeah. backfield by the freshman left tackle who struggled a lot. What did your numbers say about the type of quarterback player offensive efficiency that Alabama got on on Saturday night? And what is what do you think it means for them from this point forward? I mean, the biggest thing the numbers say is that Milrose not getting much help. Um, you know, obviously he didn't play incredibly well. Uh, and really what we saw, you know, my biggest concern coming out of the Middle Tennessee game ended up being pretty uh, justified. And that was just that, as I wrote it in my Friday column, there was just a big gaping hole in the middle. Uh, it was all just like quick sideline passes and then three gorgeous bombs. And we talked about this last week. Mm-hmm. And those bombs were gorgeous and, and there were easy points. And he hit another one uh, to Burton on Saturday but against anybody who actually kind of, you know, was able to stop the run and, and render it inefficient and make him actually use the entire, uh, you know, everybody's entire route trees and whatnot, that was going to be something we, we didn't know the answer. And he didn't do just an amazing job in that regard. But I'm looking at the numbers right now, you know, their, their rushing success rate, their ranking and rushing success rate is 60th. Um, in the marginal explosiveness number that I always lean on for, for explosiveness, um, you know, for, for measuring that they're, they're 75th in rushing, uh, marginal explosiveness. And, um, they're just, the offensive line is, is blowing blocks and, and allowing pressures and, and committing penalties. And just the, he's not, he's looking around at a supporting cast that is not what existed there three, four, five years ago. We saw, we saw this last year too. Um, obviously Bryce Young had a decent amount to overcome and overcame most of it, but you just, you're looking around there and it's just not, the Alabama offense that we know. So I don't think changing quarterbacks is going to solve any of that. I don't, I mean, maybe one of the other two guys is just better than Milrow, but uh, at the very least, Milrow can scramble and, and offer some run efficiency of his own. And that kind of seems like a, a necessary thing right now. You got McClellan averaging 3.8 yards per carry, Milrow or uh, Williams 3.7, Jim Miller 3.3. That's horrible. And mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, that includes a game against Texas, which is one of the better f- defensive fronts they're going to see. But this is I, the problems that exist right now are, are far beyond Milrow. I don't know if a quarterback change is going to help with any of that. It's uh, it'll be interesting to see if they do it. And also the running backs are good. Miller, I think, was the guy they had hoped would give them some explosion. But I think he's he maybe has some, you know, they, I'm not sure they fully trust him and pass protection yet. How soon until they yeah. go to one of the two freshman backs that have been ballyhooed in the offseason? Uh, do they try that a little bit? Or do they try try a new quarterback to try to get some more efficient play? Because, uh, you know, there, are, there yeah. are things that go into running an offense that you only know if you're in the room watching the <laughs> right. film afterwards. There are things like, why didn't you check here? Why didn't you adjust here? Why did you read this instead of that? We, you know, all of those types of things that you look at it and the numbers will tell you one thing, your eyes will tell you something, but the educated evaluation from the coaching staff when they watch the all 22 and they say, this was here, this was the read, why didn't you take it? Or this wasn't here and you blew the block and now we've, we've got to find a new, you know, guard or center, whatever it is. Those are the types of things sometimes that, that we overlook, but the numbers, uh, the numbers I agree with you suggest that there are problems other than Jalen Milrow and the ceiling yeah. for Jalen Milrow is still enormous because of his yeah. physical gifts, but you can't afford the catastrophic <laughs> errors that, you know, that, that happened on Saturday night. The, the interceptions yeah. were, um, uh, were, were pretty, you know, pretty egregious. The second pick, especially, I mean, he just doesn't even see the safety who's standing right in the path of the ball. Like that was a, that was a d- devastating one at the time that it happened too. So that was, yeah, I don't want to pretend like this, that he is, is fine. He has improvement to do too, but it is, uh, that was, that was pretty bad. It, it was, it, it was kind of funny. I, I hesitate to tell, to tell this story. My daughter was with me uh, at the game. She roots for Alabama and she unwittingly was in the background of the McAfee show shot. 
And when <laughs> that happened, it was right in front of us. She put both of her hands over her face because she's not, she's not in sports media. She's an actress. She hasn't, uh, she, she's not really, uh, encumbered by the show no emotion on the sideline either way <laughs> and put both her hands over her face and her friend, one of her, her boyfriends saw it and sent her a screenshot of it. So that was, I told Pat, about, I guess I tell it on the podcast because I mentioned it to Pat when I was uh, on his show afterwards for a few minutes there. So anyway, yeah, uh, she saw it. Uh, but poor Jalen Milrow didn't at the time, but nope. I, I still believe in his potential now. You know, whether yeah. they can weather the mistakes to get there remains to be seen and probably get some answer to that against USF on Saturday afternoon. Uh, Bill, I'm going to leave you with this one. We've yeah. said at the very top, and I know that you are a numbers evaluating guy more than anything <laughs> else. You like to rely on your numbers. If you're going to find one, if you're going to pick the shocker, which one would you go for? <laughs> which which ranked team is going to step on a rake and hit themselves in a face on Saturday? <sighs> Tennessee. Whoa. Do you know what that would mean for Billy Napier? I know. <laughs> I mean, that, as that would mean awful, a lot for a lot of people. <laughs> as awful as they looked against Utah. And I don't mean that to take away from Utah. Utah is a better team than they do. And they just yeah. whip them. But getting people on the field, two of the same number on the field, the clock. Yeah. Like just I mean, just so many things. If they beat Tennessee, <laughs> are you're you're saying you're not calling it though. You're saying that is most the most if, likely right. one. If uh, right. If an upset happens, I'm just worried, like I'm. T- we're talking about you know slow starts and everything. Tennessee started the game against Virginia, touchdown, turnover on downs, punt, 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 uh, and against Austin P, they started punt, punt, field goal, turnover on downs, field goal, and Florida's better than those two teams. I, I don't know if they have a better defense than Virginia. Virginia at least has some uh, a good defense, but. They're going to have to show up more than that. And maybe they will. It was the same thing I said about Georgia. Maybe th- everything's fine when you really have to try. But that's not what I was looking for from the, the beginning of the Joe Milton experience. And, and they're going to have to show up better than that. If, if that happens, Bill, then there will only be one way to explain it. Well, God smiled on the Mighty Gators again. <laughs> that would be the only way to explain it. The great Bill Connolly. Bill, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. College game day on Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern time from the business field at Colorado. You will not believe what we've got cooked up for this show. It's first time there since 1996. I've got to verify this. I believe that show was pre-Lee Corso headgear, though there was a headgear involved. We'll explain all of that on Saturday because it's a historic day. The 400th headgear pick of Lee Corso's storied career. Going to be a great morning there. Deion Sanders will be with us on the set. All kinds of surprises. And we'll see which of these games that Bill and I just spent a lot of time talking about turn out to be upsets. Which ones are the most likely ones? Will it be Florida over Tennessee, as Bill thinks, is most likely if, he didn't pick it, but if there is one to occur. I might have other ideas about that. We'll share that on the Picks Podcast on Friday, also on Superdogs on Saturday morning on College Game Day. Thanks for listening to the College Game Day Podcast. Pete Thamel on assignment doing a story on USC star Caleb Williams. Look forward to seeing that. Ask you to subscribe to our podcast. That's the easiest way to make sure it winds up right on your device so you can listen without any any entanglements. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.